So welcome again to the podcast. Today I'm going to be talking about lenses and primarily, I'm sorry, no pun intended there. Primarily we're going to be talking about sharpness and contrast and why it's not always good. So as I was growing up, and I've talked about this before, but as I was growing up, I read popular photography magazine. I read Shutterbug and there were a number of other magazines that reviewed lenses and, you know, the articles used certain terms, terminology, if you will, such as contrasty and sharp. And they were almost synonymous with a high quality lens. It was never stated, oh, this lens, I don't recommend it. It's not very good. It's just too sharp and too contrasty. And then the third thing might be uh, the color saturation. It's just the colors are just too dull. You know, it just was never stated that way. It was always, it's a positive thing. But I'm going to talk about how lens-sensor relationships are the key to capturing the best, uh, or to getting the most from your dynamic range. Now, I was about to say for getting the best dy dynamic range, but... I would have probably gotten some objections for that because every time I accidentally say something that indicates that you're getting more dynamic range out of a sensor, I'll have people say, well, technically, your sensor only has a specific dynamic range. And it says in the specifications of the camera, the book, or the, the, the press release, or whatever, that this sensor has this much dynamic range. And, of course, technically, that's correct. But in a practical sense... Let's just let's just say that, and I really want to bring up Ansel Adams here because he would be he would be loving this conversation. He would be he would know the the real answer to this question. I believe that the answer to this question is that yes, a sensor has certain capabilities. Now, right away, you know that camera companies apply some sort of processing, but back to dynamic range. I just want to say that um, I'm simplifying the concept down to say a sensor has a specific dynamic range to start with. We're just going to accept that as a fact, even if it's got some nuances and there are some uh, technical things that are not completely true about that. For the sake of this argument and just to get a picture painted, let's say that there's a limited, a specific dynamic range of a sensor. And so if you have a certain dynamic range, and let's just make it very simple to talk about the Ansel Adams uh, zone system at the same time. Let's just say that you have 10 stops of dynamic range. I know that's not very good, but I'm just saying, let's say there were 10. And that makes us, or brings, or let's say, no, let's say 11, because that's how many steps are in the Ansel Adams uh, zone system chart. So zero being complete black, and the 11th step is actually zone 10, because remember, zero is one, or zero is the first. So between zero and 10, you have 11 steps. In the middle, what, what, the why you need to do that is because then five is directly in the middle. Each step of the Ansel Adams chart has, you know, zero, and then a lighter black, a lighter black, and then you get into gray, and then five is your medium gray, your 18% gray, I believe, like your camera uh, meter looks for. 
and then all the way to 10, and zone 10 is complete white. Well, the concept behind the Ansel Adams uh, zone system um, was his goal was to capture detail in each of the steps except for 0 and 10. 0 has to be black, 10 needs to be completely white. Now, that's an oversimplification of his system, um, but he was doing this in the days of film processing and dark rooms, and it was a very challenging process, but he got so good at it that he would create these images that had detail that were astounding. So not only was he dealing with what we started talking about, sharpness, but he was dealing with contrast in a very... Um, he knew contrast very well. Let's just say he understood it because what is contrast when it comes to trying to render detail in all but those first and last steps of the zone system? Well, contrast in a certain sense is not your friend, but I should say it's someone you need to get <laughs> familiar with so you can work together. So here's what I mean. I want to go into a little bit more of a specific explanation instead of instead of like a philosophical explanation, but let's let's talk about it. So when we say a sensor has a limited dynamic range, and we're saying eleven stops just for the analogy of the Ansel Adams system to match it perfectly to those eleven steps, you bring a lens into this and you you put that lens in between the sensor and the light source. So if you're outdoors, you have this really intense light source, which is the sun. And what happens is that goes into the lens, bounces around. Depending on how good the lens is, um, it's controlling that fairly well. And then, based on the aperture size that you've selected it lets that light through the other end of the lens. And that light strikes the sensor. Now you can start to think about it's the path of the light. The path the light is taking. The journey of that light. And then when that light goes through the other end of the lens and strikes the sensor, that's what makes a difference. I mean, that's what I'm controlling. That's what I'm working on. And then... What I do is I work with the camera settings specific to that lens. Now, if it's a vintage lens, you're going to have varying degrees of, I don't know, degradation of certain parts of the lens, whether it's the, I mean, you try to get the cleanest lens possible, but you know there's not, it's not a perfect world, so there's going to be some variance and then, of course, in manufacturing, even at, at um, you know, when the lens was new, at, at its best point, there's probably a little bit of variance. It depends on the quality of the manufacturing, right? So it's all about the path. It's all about the journey of the light through the lens and then to the sensor. Now, what about, or how does this, how does sharpness um, affect and how do how do contrast and sharpness affect this and even color saturation? 
Or how are they affected? How do they affect it? And how are they affected by this path? Well, just remember, lens manufacturers sometimes design their lenses specific to the sensors that they also sell. So if it's a Nikon, and it's a Nikon lens, they test it with their own camera. And you know that they make adjustments. Uh, I mean, I'm assuming they make adjustments because they find, and I know they make adjustments because, you know, there's even corrections that they make for optical distortion um, in the camera. So they say, well, this lens needs this correction, and I'm just amazed by it, but there are these corrections that happen behind the scenes that we don't really hear advertised that much, but... I mean, you, you you do see it in the specifications, I guess. But they're sort of fixing some of the problems with their lenses. So if you take their lens off and put it on a different camera, you know, like I do all the time with adapted lenses for my Panasonic Micro Four Thirds cameras, these are a, a different sort, you know, it's a different lens than if you put it on the native mount and uh, have the benefit of all the corrections that, are being done in camera. So we're going to not talk about that part right now. We're just going to talk about if you put a lens on a camera, you are doing something to the light. Now, if you're outside, like I said, in the bright sunlight, or if you're in a more subdued lighting environment, let's say fog or clouds, it's going to be a different story. The light coming in is different, and the journey of the light and the final destination of the light on the sensor, it's, it's a different story. So why do I bring this up in terms of lens sharpness and contrast? Well, as I mentioned when I was uh, younger reading all these magazines and reading that the term sharpness was a positive thing and the term contrast was a positive thing and having high color saturation was a positive thing. Remember, this is all back in the days of film. And this is, if you will, um, a very, they had a very limited number, uh, limited being a positive thing, <laughs> a positive, not a, not a film joke, but in negatives or in positive film, they only had maybe four or five top emulsions that they had to test with. So, you know, you had uh, in slide film, I wasn't familiar with that, but, you know, Kodak Ektachrome and, and Fuji had Velvia and you had, you know, different film stocks and Sensia. And, and so these film stocks were fairly standard. And compared with the number of variables today, meaning every sensor is sort of like a film stock, every sensor being um, different, not, not to say that within a camera uh, manufacturer, within their line, they may use that same sensor in multiple cameras, sometimes applying different processing. But that sensor is sort of like the film stock. And what that tells us is that back in the days of film, I'm sure they tested 
the lenses that a uh, lens manufacturer makes, they tested those with the most popular film stock. And they said, wow, this is really working well. You know, it's got just the right amount of contrast. It has, you know, it's not too much. It's just, it's just, it's just working. And they would test the ISO 100 version. They would test the ISO 200 version, the 400 version, the 800 version, maybe even the 3200 version, the 1600 version as well, ISO. And they would, they would conclude that this is a good lens design. And everyone would look at it and they would say, you're right. You're right. Good job, lens designers. Excellent. We have just designed a lens that will last forever. And then digital sensors come to <laughs> come to be. Now all the lenses that were designed for film, now I'm not going to say they're not good anymore, but I'm just going to say they're different. The requirements are now different. I like to refer to my first interchangeable lens digital camera as a great example of this. I purchased a Nikon D70, so, you know, amateur or intermediate level interchangeable lens camera. And I bought a great lens with it, a lens that I wish I would have never sold, but it's a Nikon 24 to 85 AFD 2.8 to 4. Now, that lens, I have uh, some regrets, uh, as, as you notice, about selling it because it was a very good lens optically, even though it was a variable aperture. And I did not appreciate how good the lens was until using that that. A lens on digital cameras. But yes, that was a digital camera, the D70. And what I did was I tried to use that camera outdoors, just turn it on, put the lens on, you know, put the lens on, turn it on. Wasn't aware of which camera mode I was shooting in at the time. And it was so contrasty that I could not use it in bright sunlit conditions. And I was just I was confused. I had um, also purchased a Panasonic FZ10. It's a very small sensor bridge camera. And I was getting better results from that. Now, I did put a diffusion filter on the FZ10. And looking back, that that is probably most of the reason why it worked. The FZ10 looked over-sharpened, and it was too contrasty without adding a filter. I now realize that. I know, I can see the importance of that now. But I was able to figure out the right filter that I had a lot of filters to choose from at the time, and it ended up being a Tiffin Soft Effects 2. So that made the image actually look pretty normal. That tells you how over-sharpened the image was initially. So without changing any camera settings at the time, but I because I didn't really know about that, I didn't really want to change the settings, and then um, my biggest thing was I didn't want to have certain specific settings and then turn the camera off or the battery go dead or you know maybe lose those settings, I thought. So I kept everything at the default settings, and I just used different filtration to get the image to look organic. 
and not digital. And a big part of that was controlling the contrast, well, controlling the sharpness and the contrast and the color saturation to bring it to a level that when it was recorded by the sensor, it rendered a realistic and natural-looking image. That has been my goal, and that is still my goal. However, I'm not talking about shooting flat. I'm not talking about shooting in log and shooting all gray. I have a different. Uh, I have some blog posts about that. I have some videos about that. Um, but I know it's a little bit unconventional. But the way I shoot is I try to get it to look as good as possible in the camera, and I do that for several reasons. One is that you can live stream and have a good-looking image. Second is it, it speeds up the editing workflow. If you're not doing something that is um, absolutely critical that you have every option of which direction to go and you just want an image that looks real, it's a lot faster. But I'm also doing uh, some still photography on the side and it's a, it's a print product and it saves them time when you produce an image that is easy to just print without a lot of corrections. So getting it right in camera has been my thing. <clears throat> I know, again, some people won't do it that way. They'll, they want to shoot gray and flat and then work on the image later. I just, I don't recommend that for entry level. I don't recommend that for uh, a number of situations. And so I try to make it look the best it can in camera. Now, you might think that that's going to sacrifice a lot of dynamic range. You say, here, here you are talking about dynamic range, and you're throwing away a lot of opportunity. Well, honestly, because I've tried both <laughs> shooting flat and shooting perfect, I would call it, or close to, as close to perfect as you can, I have found that I can find a balance, a fairly good balance between the two. And what I mean by a fairly good balance is that when you're adjusting exposure and reading the, the viewfinder, if you've got a good viewfinder, you can do this. You're adjusting how light or dark the image is. With my settings, I always test it so that you can do that. And that might be sort of amazing. It's something that, you know, as a you know, still photographer, the background was always... Never trust your camera's viewfinder for digital cameras. And I thought, okay, that's the right thing. Because the, the viewfinders, <clears throat> you know, like on the camera, I mentioned the Nikon D70, they were not accurate. And most of the cameras of that time were not. However, and so, so you would wait to make a judgment until you had it on your computer, and you would sort of learn um, how to judge your screen. And, you know, you can't rely on it, but you kind of know... And that's why people use the, um, you know, the flashing highlight warning. Or these days, a lot of cameras now have zebras. And that gives you an idea of what's overexposed. Or they look at the histogram or the numbers, things like that. But I'm finding certain screens, side, sorry for the side note, but certain screens like the Panasonic GX85 are very accurate. And I'm actually judging not just exposure, lightness and darkness, but I'm judging contrast in not quite sharpness but um, judging well focus and even color 
So back to dynamic range again. So if the sensor has a certain limited dynamic range, like in the case of that uh, Nikon D70 that I couldn't use outdoors because of the limited dynamic range of the sensor, what do you do? Well, what I did, similar to what I did with the Panasonic FC10, was to modify the light, or sorry, modify the path of the light by using a filter. So the filter had to reduce the contrast, and for certain lenses, you might even want to reduce the sharpness. Um, in the case of the FC10, it had a very good Leica lens, and being that it was a very good lens, the camera sensor uh, committee <laughs> and the lens committee just, just didn't quite deliver the right amount of contrast or sharpness for that sensor. Now, now you say, well, of course not, right? I mean, we're Leica. We're going to produce the sharpest lens we can possible. Well, I'm not saying it's that, that simple. I know they create a lens that has a lot of good characteristics. But when it comes down to it, it's the combination of the two, the lens-sensor combination, that relationship, I call it. You'll find this in a lot of situations where the lens is too sharp or too contrasty for a specific sensor. The first thing you can do, like I mentioned, is you can change the level of sharpness or change the level of contrast with a filter. And it feels, feels a little bit strange to take a very sharp lens, a lens that has a reputation of being really sharp, like the Sigma 18-35 art lens. Other lenses from Sigma that are art lenses, now very sharp lenses, very contrasty, very, you know, a lot of color information, maybe too much saturation. And tone that down so that when it hits the sensor, it looks realistic. Because you see, what you're trying to do is not deliver more intensity of light, even intensity and in let's say sharpness or degree of sharpness to that sensor than it can handle. And that's a strange thing to say because it used to be get the sharpest lens you can, get the highest contrast lens you can, get the lens that can be the most saturated possible. But we find out that with, with, with digital, each sensor has different abilities. We'll just say it, say it that way. The sensor has, well, you've probably noticed, you've probably noticed in your lens testing, you know, we've all done some lens testing, and you've probably noticed that you put a vintage lens on certain cameras, and it looks really good, and you think, Wow, my highlights are not blowing out. It's easy to control. I mean, the midtones are there, of course, but I'm getting, I mean, I'm, it looks like better dynamic range. Well, of course, what it is, is with the limited and set dynamic range that your sensor is capable of, you, you don't want to push the amount of light you send, of course, the amount of light would just be the exposure, right? So you don't want to push the amount of light because then you're getting overexposure and that's not going to be rendered well. But what I'm more talking about is the contrast. 
Let's deal with the sharpness in a second here. But the contrast that's sent to the sensor can be at a greater, it's, it sort of like delivers a higher dynamic range amount of light. And then because your lens can't handle that dynamic range, doesn't have that dynamic range, it's going to have to decide. You're going to have to expose up or down, or they say to the left or to the right. You can't get both the highlight and the shadow information because the lens is too contrasty. Now take a breath and travel back 50 years or so to, we've already talked about the fact that these older lenses were designed for film stock, but go all the way back to Pentax and Takumar lenses. Have you ever tried a Takumar lens from, oh, I don't know, the 50s, early 60s, around there? The Super Takumar lenses, especially? In my opinion, they have this they have this strange ability to not only be sharp, but also <clears throat> to not blow out the highlights. It's like they're really sharp, but they're not really contrasty, if you understand what I mean. And that gives them this special ability to have smooth highlight roll-off, meaning you don't lose detail in the highlights. It's just astounding how the Pentax Takumar lenses, the Super Takumars, and those around that vintage, or of that vintage, have that ability. And I know that I've seen different images, and you could just say, that's a Pentax Takumar, and you find out that's why it looks so unique. It's because they have this ability to be low contrast in the highlight areas, and yet still have dark shadows, I mean, you know, dark blacks, it's like, who came up with that lens formula? It just works so well. But I don't talk about Takumar lenses very much because even though they're really good, they're hard to find, or, you know, they're, it's possible to find them, but it's just something that's rare, so I don't like to talk about something and get super excited about it and, and then have people not be able to go out, go out and try it themselves. So I try to talk about lenses that are more common, and so we can all, you know, play along. And so I'm going to wrap this up, but I just wanted to introduce the concept again, <laughs> again, that it's not that you want your lens to be as sharp as possible all the time. It comes down to the interaction between the lens and the sensor. And if you have a high contrast lens and a sensor that's not capable of that, well, you run into problems. And what I do on my website is, and the reason I started my website in the first place, was to uh, figure out for each lens what the best camera settings are. That is, I'm actually storing custom settings for each lens that I use. Well, <clears throat> I got beyond the three or four custom presets that my camera could hold, and I started to think, I need to make a database so I can store all of this and get to it while I'm out shooting. So I made a website that has all the lenses that I've used, or at least that I currently have and have been testing. And if you click on that, 
you can see the settings for that lens. Now, it's specific to the cameras I have. So I've got four cameras, five if you count the Panasonic FZ1000. So you, you need to really take the camera into consideration, not just the lens. So if you have the camera and the lens that I have, you can check out my website, silverlightphotoco.com, and go under cameras, and you can pick the camera first and the lens underneath that and get the settings I'm using. So I'm excited about it. I've actually also done something that I'm still working on, but I've been creating LUTs for each of those as well because we'll go into more. I mean, there's some other podcast episodes I do talk about this in detail. But I find that sometimes the camera settings can't get you all the way there. So I use a LUT to sort of do the final uh, tweaks. Anyway, more information is on my website. Check that out, silverlightphotoco.com. And uh, I'm interested to put more of these LUTs out. Um, I could start making some money from those, hopefully. But really, the camera settings are the first step. So even if you don't want to buy the LUTs right now, they're only $5 each, but even if you don't want to do that, I think that the most important step you can take is to use the camera settings, pay attention to the color mode and everything like that. It's, it's all on the settings page. And then you can make your own LUT you could, because it's, it's really a small tweak. To f Sometimes it's a small tweak, sometimes it's a little bit more. But I try to make it a just a finishing touch. So the LUT by itself is not going to do anything, hardly. But the settings plus the lens sensor specific LUT, I, I feel like I'm making these lenses way better. And I'll tell you, um, there's lenses I gave up on. And then I went back and I had to purchase those again. Because with this new approach of specific uh, settings, that is lens sensor specific settings, I'm really getting a lot better quality out of almost every single lens. So again, if you're interested in more details, check out my um, website. There's also a blog on there, and there's some articles about this, and there are a lot more podcast episodes about this as well. So check out some of the past episodes. I talk about lenses, sensors, and other things as well. So thanks for listening, and see you next time.